crime did he commit? It's crime. This is the police. You're surrounded. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. You're under arrest. All right, we're done it. Alrighty, diving into something that'll be a regular here on Thursdays where we get a chance to chat with a top cop about the issues that need to be in the headlines. That is Mr. John Reed, president of the Toronto Police Association. It is great to have you here. Good morning, Alex. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, no, I think it's important because there's just so much going on. And a lot of the times I think the headlines get buried on the major issues that really do affect us and certainly officers on the front lines day to day. Let me kick things off. You know, you, you, you're, uh, your organization put out a, a tweet last night that I thought was interesting and speaks to an issue that you have been talking about a lot lately, and that is the catch and release. But you talk about in June, a man arrested for carjacking. He was armed, charged with multiple offenses. And what do you know, gets bail in September, where he is then alleged to have taken off his electronic bracelet. And now he's somewhere gone off with the dodo bird. Yeah. And and once again, Alex, this is um, a scene that keeps repeating itself over and over and over again in our justice system. You know, we have an individual here uh, with an armed, uh, loaded pistol. you know, commits a carjacking. Uh, our officers go out, investigate, apprehend the person. Uh, he's charged with, with numerous serious, serious offenses, uh, only to be released a short time later, uh, you know, with an ankle bracelet. And then mm-hmm. he now cuts the bracelet off, and now he's back out uh, amongst the public. And I look at this just kind of from the point of view of, you know, our, our officers worked really, really hard to apprehend this individual, put him before the courts to keep the community safe. But what message does this send to these the victims of the carjacking? You know, mm-hmm. and it's really, it should be disturbing. I think it's very disturbing to our members and to me. Yeah, I would I would have to think it's extremely frustrating. I mean, you put these guys away, you get them off the streets, and then what do you know? They're out on the streets a, a little bit later. You know, whatever their record is, and these are not people who are you know. Oopsies. I mean, a lot of times when we get these catch and release uh, bail candidates, they have multiple, multiple charges and convictions from their past and they're well known to police. But it's also a major waste of resources. I mean, if we're just going to release everybody, why catch them? And so I have to think, you know, while an officer would never, you know, say that, but I have to think, you know, if you're if you're just, you know, thinking to yourself as a cop, you're like, why am I putting myself out there if this guy or gal is going to be out, you know, next week? Yeah, and I think you're right, but uh, I can tell you the you know the members of the Toronto Police Service are truly committed to public safety and doing their jobs, and the vast majority of them, you know, this was a calling for them, and they do a really uh, you know, an excellent job, I think, at um, investigating, apprehending these individuals, and bringing them before the courts. But I think mm-hmm. when these people are released back in the communities, it just erodes the public confidence in our justice system, you know, and it compromises the safety of our neighborhoods. Um, and really is a slight against our members from the point of view of the efforts they keep putting forth day in, day out. Yeah, but the critics will, as you know, John, they'll say, look, we don't have um, enough jails. We don't have enough jails that are in good condition, that are fair to those who are accused. And, you know, we can't keep everybody who's on bail um, incarcerated until their trial. Fair enough. But you can keep the people in who are armed with guns who are part of the headlines of killing people all over the city of, of Toronto and the GTA uh, HA. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think, you know, at some point we have to start putting the public safety, the general public safety, ahead of these individuals. And I realized back, you know, uh, when we started looking at rehabilitation from the point of view of um, the justice system back in the 70s, I think the pendulum's gone a little too far now. And I think we need to make sure that people are actually held accountable 
if people are out committing these very, very serious criminal offenses against, uh, you know, members of the public with loaded firearms, there needs to be some accountability. And people need to realize if they're going to commit such these offenses such as this, they're not going to be getting bail. They're going to be held in custody until they actually get their day in court. Well, that would, I think, at some point, might not be right away. It would send a message. Look, if you're going to walk around with a gun. And I mean, look, I think we all know, and I'll touch the third rail here. Some form of intelligence, whether it's carding, has to be brought back because we have a problem. And I think we all have to, you know, admit that. No one's going to admit that during a municipal election. But, you know, if you actually start to set a deterrent, eventually people might say, you know, I don't, know, I don't really want a five-year, you know, jail stay or a two-year jail stay, you know, to go out with a gun. Maybe. Yeah. And I think also to your point, so we've had liberal government has actually gone and rolled back the mandatory sentencing yeah. um, a short while ago, which once again, to me, that what, what message does that send out to the public as a whole? And it definitely sends a very soft message out to these criminals that are actually committing these offenses in our communities. Well, they're not scared and, and they're not scared and they show it. I mean, the fact that they'll go and sit and, and pray upon a, an officer going to get Tim Hortons and then just assassinate them says that they don't care because uh, they know there's not going to be a consequence. And then, you know, you've got stories like we saw on Tuesday night where we get a headline from Joe Warmington, you know, out of another Toronto police officer targeted by this time a driver. And they believe it was deliberate. Um, this happened in a Scarborough parking lot where you've got this officer out there and a driver deciding to try to get you know, away. But nonetheless, this officer was uh, targeted. And it's not the first time that this has happened. So how often are officers being targeted and we're not hearing about it? So as far as officers being injured you know, in the line of duty, uh, such as that, it happens a lot. Almost, um, you know, I'd say daily there's some sort of injuries, whether they be minor. Uh, the extreme cases, such as the other evening, uh, don't happen as frequently. But the problem is the frequency is going up. And I think the reality is for, for police officers that go out there each and every day, you know, they put on that uniform and they do go to work knowing there's a risk. There's always that risk when you leave home that you may not return. Um, you know, I think most officers put that in the back of their mind. They're confident in their training, their skills and their abilities. But these dynamic situations can unfold very, very quickly and deteriorate very quickly as well. And going back to that incident the other night, you know, we have an officer struck by a car. You know, fortunately, he didn't receive any broken bones. Um, you know, but he may very well, if he'd gone under the car, this would be a different story. And we really do need the public to understand. And we need that silent majority in the public to understand what's going on and voice their concern about what's going on with these individuals that are being released uh, from jail and on bail. It is is this an issue, though, John, where if you had two officers together all the time, and I'm not sure where things stand with that, if uh, cops are, I know that there are officers that go out individually, but if we put officers always in a team, would that not, um, you know, it might be more expensive, and I'm sure people would say, we don't have the money for it, but if they're getting to the point in their job where they can't watch their own back, um, you know, would that help? Well, I think uh, there's always safety in numbers. And I'm a huge proponent of that. Um, you know, within have, also, have officers been asking for that? Uh, yeah, so we actually, within our collective agreement, we have a clause which allows for two-man patrol cars in the la latter part of the evenings. Uh, if you go to somewhere like LAPD, um, where they actually have two-man patrol cars, is an absolute 24-7. Um, right. You know, I think it's always a benefit of having a, par having a partner. Um, you know, it's officer safety is always number one for me to make sure our men and women, when they go out there, they go to work and make sure they come home. 
Yeah, because if there had been an officer, let's say, with um, you know, Constable Hong that day, uh, you know, they keep their eye out and can kind of watch for, for things coming up. Um, again, you're never going to get, I think, that situation all the time where you've got two officers together at every time. And I would think there are certain officers that want to be on their own, right? Uh, I think it kind of, it depends on the officer. It depends on what kind of investigations they're doing, uh, what their function is. Uh, but I think for a general patrol, where officers are responding to uh, radio calls. And quite frankly, radio calls are probably the most dangerous uh, radio calls to deal with because once that radio goes off, not a lot of calls, once you get to the scene, it's not really the call that you had the information on initially because a lot right. of these calls end high stress, low information calls. You know, yeah. so our so, yeah. they have to, yeah, what's going on uh, once again. Well, in other words, like you can, it's easy to blame a cop, um, you know, in a mental um, distress issue uh, for acting too quickly. But again, these officers most of the time have no idea what they're being called to until they get there. And to that point, by the time they get there, a lot can change in the in the dynamics. So I, I know that there's a lot of armchair quarterbacks out there that are quick to say what they would do. But you just don't know what you don't know. Well, exactly. And I think our, our members and you know any police officer that's kind of been on the street, they have to get out there. They have to make split-second decisions sometimes upon arriving on scene to try and bring a situation under control. And that is what we're trained for. That's what we're paid to do. And we go and do the job. And it really does annoy me when we get the armchair quarterbacks criticizing the officers, especially when we get bits and pieces of video, which don't actually um, tell the full story at all. And this is something which we have to be very careful of, is the video that does sometimes get out, whether it be off someone's cell phone, uh, camera. It doesn't capture the entire incident or the entire mm -hmm. engagement that they involved in. Um, so we need to be very kind of cautious with that. And also give, if it is going to be investigated by an external body, give that body uh, the opportunity to investigate it without coming to a conclusion beforehand. Yeah, just quickly, because I'm, I'm going to run out of time. But John, I mean, then it speaks to the issue that, you know, if we... Um, actually get more information up top, up front, then we get the context and we are going the other direction where we're not actually getting all the information and it's getting harder and harder to find out what is going on in a policing investigation. Would, would you think that we need uh, to be more proactive in getting the information out? Because I'm not sure where this directive comes from, if it's upper management, upper brass of the police not wanting to give out information or if it's the uh, rank and file. You know, generally speaking, with any investigation, you have to make sure you're actually able to protect the integrity of the investigation. And that may uh, include keeping certain information um, contained for a period of time until you can actually speak with all the witnesses. Because uh, one thing you don't want to do is start tainting witnesses by, by providing information in the media or showing video in the media that somebody may, may, may or may not have seen. And if someone who is an actual witness that saw the event, sees the additional video or hears additional information, that could taint their account of what happened. Yeah, I know there's a, a real balance, but I just feel like in the last few years we've moved further and further away from proactive uh, info. Nonetheless, John, we'll see what comes up next week, and we will talk with you again. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. That is John Reed, president of the Toronto Police Association, who will join me Thursdays at 11 to go through the headlines and give you some better context instead of the armchair quarterback.